Hello, hello. I am thrilled to be here for the final re-release in between seasons eight and nine, quite specific, but here we are. Uh, I'm really excited that we've been re-releasing these episodes. They've gotten really good hits. People are listening, which I'm stoked on. I feel like when we're in between seasons, it can always be tricky to get people to tune in. Uh, But I think that these three episodes that we chose are really fantastic. And uh, this one included Sex and Porn Addiction with Erica Garza. Uh, I invite you to take a walk down memory lane and listen to our 50th episode ever. Holy cow, that was a long time ago. Uh, And in this episode, we talked to Erica Garza, author of the memoir, Getting Off, One Woman's Journey Through Sex and Porn Addiction. Uh, Listeners who are experiencing sex addiction or are partnered with someone experiencing sex addiction will get a lot from this episode. Uh, Erica speaks really, really candidly about her experience with her sex addiction in a way that we really don't often hear women share publicly. I found it very refreshing that she was so honest and authentic about who she was and really unashamed uh, about it. And I think that did come from experiencing a lot of shame previously, but I was really like impressed with the way in which she carried herself and explained uh, her experience in this conversation. Uh, her book, Getting Off, is now available on ebook, and you can find out more from Erica these days on her Instagram at Erica D. Garza. And without further ado, here I am with Erica. Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast. If you love and support the work that we do, head to www.sexedwithdb.com and buy some of our hot new merch. Follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast. And if you want to advertise with us, shoot us an email at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. Today, I chat with Erica Garza. She's the author of the memoir, Getting Off, One Woman's Journey Through Sex and Porn Addiction. Her writing has appeared in Time, Health, Glamour, Women's Health, and Vice. Go to her website, www.ericagarza.com to learn more. Here I am with Erica. Sex Ed with DB is supported by Clona Willie. Clona Willie has been all about dick since 96, and all kits are hand-assembled in Portland, Oregon. All materials are 100% body safe, extremely high quality, and easy to use and clean. Use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase of any Clona Willy or Clona Pussy kit at www.clonawilly.com. Follow them on IG at Clona Willy Kit. Hello, Erica. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing this morning? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. It's morning for you. It's nighttime for me. Things are all crazy, all kooky. Um, And I'm really, really grateful that you're here today. And let's get started by you sharing your name, your pronouns, and what you do. Sure. My name is Erica Garza. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the author of the memoir, Getting Off. Amazing. Thank you. I'm very sweet and succinct. Um, So... (laughs) Tell me, tell me about your background and how you became passionate about being a writer. 
So I started keeping a journal when I was around seven years old. And I still remember this feeling when I would come to the page where it was this safe space where I can be completely myself, unedited, and just be vulnerable. And although I wouldn't have articulated it this way in the past, I think that I knew that writing was this way to take this mess that was going on in my head and just externalize it and put it outside of me. And only then when I could look at it from afar, I'd be able to make some sense of it. And I think I always carried that with me as like a, as a tool um, to help myself figure myself out. And I've always been drawn to memoirs and personal essays and it just seemed right that I should take my professional career in that, in that direction. Love it. And what would you write about in those journals? The classic stuff of like crushes and family or like, did, were there oh, like, my father was ruining my life. Oh my God. Yes. You know, boy bands. Exactly. I was a very big NSYNC fan. Same. No Backstreet Boys. Would oh be really? Oh God. I love Backstreet Boys too. Okay. Go on. <laughs> You're my enemy. No. <laughs> I love JC. I thought I was going to marry JC. Oh, um, so beautiful. It's funny though, because I still have some of those journals. And so if I flip back to like quite young, like eight, nine, I have, you know, lists. Like I was already pretty obsessed with boys and girls um, from a very young age. And I would always write lists of what I wanted and, and stories of what I wanted to do if we were alone. And it was always kind of hinting at, even though I wasn't really sure how sex worked back then, it was always hinting at it and wanting to find out what it was all about. And mm -hmm. there's evidence of that all over my journal. <laughs> totally. Pretty yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, so let's talk about your book. So getting off one woman's journey through sex and porn addiction. So I would love to know, you know, about the book, what really inspired you to write it? Like, what'd you learn while writing it? Um, and, and just what was the whole experience like for you? So there are two different reasons I wrote that book. The first being that what I just said about writing in journals and writing for myself was that I just wanted to figure out what my path was about, why my relationships hadn't worked out, why I so often felt so lonely and, and why I had all these kind of um, conflicted ideas around sex. And I just wanted to figure that out. So I'd always used writing as a therapeutic tool and it was no different with this book before I even knew that it would become a book. Um, <clears throat> and then secondly, I had written an essay about sex addiction and it was published on a website called Salon, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And it was called Tales of a Female Sex Addict. And that was the first time that I'd ever put something like this out publicly for other people to read. And it was sort of just an experiment of like, how much could I reveal of myself? How personal could I get? What's it like to tell a secret like this on such a public, in such a public space? And it was a relief to not just give that information out for other people to read, but also because of the outpour of messages that I received um, because of it. And I mean, from men, women, people who are, you know, like 16 year olds and then people mid-aged. I mean, just the variety of people who were experiencing this thing that felt so private and personal to me um, just made me feel less alone. And I thought if I'm feeling less alone, then they're feeling less alone. And this is something I can do. And we don't often have this opportunity to help other people in this way just by being ourselves and just by being real and honest. And I thought, okay, well, this is just something I have to do. And even if it feels uncomfortable, if it's going to help somebody else, and if it's going to help me in the process, then let's go for it. Let's do it. Totally. Yeah. I feel like that's such a special thing when especially 
something that is so personal and so intense and just really vulnerable and scary. And when you put it out there and you find that it is super relevant to many, many people and, you know, especially since sex and sex addiction and addiction in general is an extremely like taboo and shameful kind of topic in, in our culture, like in, in the U S um, I'm sure that that meant a lot to a lot of people. So kudos to yeah, you. That's yeah. incredible. So many people, you know, it's an isolating sort of, it's an isolating addiction. Even if you're a sex addict and you're having sex with multiple people, you can still feel so alone in it and so ashamed. And when another person is speaking about something you're going through, then yes, of course, you're going to feel less alone and less ashamed. So exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's get into that. How, how did you know that you were addicted to sex and porn? How did it really escalate for you? What were maybe some of the signs and, and what, what was your kind of experience up until you realized that that was what you were going through? So I would have said that I had a problem with sex from the very beginning, from when I was 12 years old and I was masturbating furiously in the bathtub and waiting for my parents to go to sleep so I could sneak downstairs and watch softcore porn on Cinemax. All those things wow, were... Wow, 12. Okay. Which 12, you know, I'm, I don't know why I'm surprised. 12 is like a pretty typical age for kids to start watching porn. Exactly. And, you know, in retrospect, I think... I, I didn't have a problem. My enthusiasm for it, my instincts were totally normal in retrospect. Um, but at the time, you know, because I had such little context about sex, little knowledge about it, I just figured what I was doing. And I was, I should mention, I was raised in a Catholic Latino household. And so nobody ever talked about sex except to say that it was something bad and wrong right. and dirty. And so, of course, those images were all, you know, pleasure. I didn't know how to feel pleasure without shame. Those two came together from the beginning. And so I wanted to stop, but I couldn't stop because it felt too good. And exactly. so I always felt myself caught in this, in this um, state. And so, yeah, even though I didn't feel like, even though I wouldn't say now that I had a problem, then I did believe I had a problem. And I do recognize now that it shifted into a problematic territory quite early as well. So at 12, not long after I made those discoveries, I was diagnosed with scoliosis, which is a severe curvature of the spine. And I remember thinking that it happened because I was masturbating in oh, the bathroom. Oh, no. you were like punished <laughs> from God or something. Yeah. And because it's a curvature of the spine, I thought, oh, it was the way I was laying in the bathtub or like oh. all of these things I made up in my mind. And so I had to ha I had to be back braced for that for two years. Oh, shit. And I remember being in the in the doctor's office and having the x-rays and the anxiety of feeling like the doctor was going to be able to tell that I'd been masturbating by looking at oh. the x-rays and then he was going to tell my parents. And it was just this this anxiety, you know, of course, and something else to layer onto how weird I already felt around sex. Here's another layer. Now I'm being punished for it. Um, but I did start using um, masturbation and porn as an escape method when I was diagnosed with scoliosis because I became really withdrawn and disgusted with my body and insecure and that made me an easy target for bullies. So I started getting bullied at school. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like it was so effective to masturbate and watch porn. Because then I, when I was doing that, when I was going after orgasm, I would get a break from all of these feelings. I could just focus in on here's this mission of acquiring the orgasm. And then afterward, of course, it would all come flooding back. But then I could just go for it again. And I couldn't have known that this was all happening around the internet 
coming out and becoming, you know, a household item. And so, you know, soon I wasn't, I didn't have to sneak downstairs when my parents were asleep and watch porn. I could just go on the laptop. And then I didn't have to wait for the right person to enter a chat room or um, a picture to download forever. You know, it was available quickly and then streaming came out. So anytime I felt like I maybe would have gotten bored with it, there was new and accessible uh, material and there was always this, you know, variety. So I, I could never get bored with one clip and it became harder to pull away from. And when I started to get the attention of boys and men, then I just still supplemented, you know, it was like, okay, I can go after guys and that's a distraction. And then I can have porn when I'm alone. And so it was always this thing that kept me from being able to face myself and face my problems in a productive way because I always had this kind of external stuff to keep me busy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And I feel like it's it's really hard for people to do that introspection. I feel like there are a lot, you know, that's kind of like what therapy is, is like really kind of like asking, you know, like you to look inside of your own like mind and experiences and really recognize like where something like that started um and yeah. I and I feel like that really resonates probably with a lot of people just the idea of you growing up in like a Catholic Latina Latino household um and really feeling like oh I can't just what you said about like I can't I couldn't feel pleasure without shame and I think that mm-hmm. that is definitely the start for many people of not being able to uncouple those things yeah And I think that, you know, for a lot of people, at least for myself, shame is what ended up driving the addiction. I think it was the most um, harmful aspect of the addiction was just feeling bad about it. Because then, yeah, I didn't know how to feel pleasure. I didn't know how to feel pleasure or love without that darkness attached to it. And so, and then I ended up seeking that out. So I would often seek partners who made me feel that, partners who made me feel used or disregarded. Um, and then the kind of porn I started to watch, I always made sure to look for clips that, you know, women were treated poorly, or it looked like they were being harmed. I would often look for like real clips of, you know, prostitutes, you know, poor prostitutes, you know, like my search, my search terms became more and more, um, something that would make me feel bad afterward or empty afterward. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not trying to demonize any kind of porn. I I know, you know, people have all sorts of different fetishes and I want to respect that and honor that. But for me, I knew when I was looking for a certain kind of clip, I was looking to, to feel something that made me feel bad after empty after. And I would carry that around with me and I would look for that in the bedroom. So it became this very intoxicating thing that didn't feel healthy. It felt destructive to me. Yeah, and I would love to know more a little bit about that journey because you talked a little bit about obviously your adolescence and like kind of growing up and I'm just kind of curious like how it how it escalated for you in, in, in the sense of was it kind of this thing of like you just kind of woke up one day and realized that it had gotten really bad or was it really after like a long time were there particular like relationships that like pushed you over the edge like what's the what was like the impetus of you I guess making the the realization that there was an issue yeah I would say it's a gradual realization often people ask what was the bottom you know what was the worst thing that ever happened for but for me it was just sort of this like this endless sort of like a groundhog day of the same sort of relationship ending up the same sort of place. And I got to a point when I was, well, I I should say when I was in my mid twenties, I was engaged to somebody who was a recovering alcoholic and he was the first person 
and, you know, meetings were a big part of his life. And, and, um, I mean, our relationship was, had all sorts of trouble from the beginning and throughout. But one of the things I remember about when we were breaking up was I was often accusing him of not wanting to have sex with me. And he fired back one day and said, look, you're a sex addict. You need to go to a meeting. And I hadn't, I mean, I had thought I had problems with sex, but I would have never phrased it that way. And I had never thought about going to a meeting or anything like that. I thought that was his thing. And, um, and so I wasn't ready to go at that point, but it was something that I kept in my head of like, maybe he's right. Maybe this is something I need to look into because yeah, my relationships are unfulfilling. Um, when I'm not partnered with somebody then I'm constantly trying to fill that gap with somebody else. And I didn't know how to be alone. I didn't know how to make friendships with people without thinking, is this going to lead to sex? Um, and so there are all sorts of signs for me, but yeah, I wasn't ready to face it at that point even though it remained in my head. It wasn't until a few years later, um, I saw the movie Shame with Michael Fassbender. I don't know if you I know this movie. I haven't seen that one. It's by Stephen Queen. It's great, but it's about a sex addict living in New York, and he watches lots of porn. He doesn't know how to have an intimate relationship. All of these sorts of things that I had been experiencing as well. And I remember watching that movie and thinking, oh, this feels really familiar. And then remembering my ex-fiance saying that same thing. And so I went to my first 12-step meeting not long after that. And being in that room with those people um, made me feel like, okay, yeah, this is where I belong. This, I feel connected with these people, what they're saying, I recognize. And, you know, and I, I felt like the right place to be. And so I feel like that was probably the beginning of my journey. And of course, it meandered on from there. So all sorts right. of different uh, relapses and trying different things. And, um, but that really was the beginning of my wake up. And that was around my 30th birthday. So about eight years ago. And I remember thinking at the beginning in my thirties, you know, I was, I was driven to sort of make some big changes in my life, like starting a new decade. I didn't right. want the same things to be happening, the same sort of relationships. I wanted something different. I wanted this decade to be the one where I sort of grow up and figure myself out. And so it felt like a good deadline. <laughs> right, right, right. I feel like that that resonates with a lot of people. Like, oh, 30, got to get my shit together yeah. now. Um, now I'm like, oh, 30, so yeah, now I'm 40, <laughs> and then who knows what the next <laughs> I know, thing is. 50, I guess. Um, but, okay, that's awesome, though, that you were able to find, like, healing through a 12-step program, because I know that that probably doesn't work for everybody. Um, mm. And also something that I find to be really interesting that I feel like I'm learning right now is my kind of preconceived notion around sex and porn addiction was really around like a frequency, right? Of like, oh, and I'm sure that's part of it for some people, but that to me was like the def part of the major definition of it of like, oh, if you like have sex so many times a day and can't stop or you can't stop watching porn and like, I'm sure, and like, you know, you're watching porn six times a day. Like, I'm sure that is part of it for some people, but also recognizing that like, it's also the kind of relationship you have with it, which I think, I don't know, you tell me, does that sound like that's more of the key? Absolutely. So a lot of people have asked me, you know, how do you know you're a sex addict? Like how many partners is too many? How many hours of porn? And you can't measure it that way. I mean, that's there are a lot of sexually empowered, healthy people who have, you know, multiple partners a week. I wouldn't call them an addict if they feel like, you know, they're not escaping something and, you know, they feel happy and their relationships are healthy outside of sex or during, you know, with their part sexual partners. There's all sorts of ways that um, people try to define sex addiction. And I think that it's up to each person to decide how they 
feel about it, what feelings they're bringing to their sexual experiences. And if they do feel powerless, you know, I think powerlessness is definitely an aspect of it. If you want to stop, but you feel incapable of stopping, then yeah, I would say that that is probably a sign that there's something there. Um, but yeah, you, you can't measure it that way. I, it is sort of the, it could be the, the kind of porn you watch. It could be, yeah, the kind of partners you're after. Um, if you feel like there's a lot of deception attached to it, you're lying to people that you love. Um, if you put yourself in dangerous, destructive situations that, you know, can cause harm, um, have a lot of unprotected sex, um, and you kind of feed on that adrenaline that comes with them, you know, Mm -hmm. what's going to happen after this, you know, I, I think there are a lot of different, um, ways that people addiction manifests for people and yeah yeah, it's up to each person yeah no that was that was excellent I'm glad that you kind of delved deeper a bit and like define that um moving right along so I'm curious about and I know you can only speak for yourself obviously but I'm sure you know you've done a lot of research in this space and probably talked to a lot of people and have experience talking to folks um in terms of how do sex and porn addicts really exist in healthy partnerships and relationships like what keeps you grounded so I know that you mentioned you have a husband um you know I'm assuming that that means that you're together you're you know with him um (laughs) and that means that obviously um you know you've you've understood and known what it's like to be in unhealthy relationships and the goal is to have Mm -hmm. healthy relationships with the people that you love and that you're partnered with um, so I'm really curious about what kinds of techniques or what kinds of healing um, do you do in order to stay kind of grounded and healthy? Okay, yeah. At the very beginning of my recovery, I remember thinking that I had to uh, put myself in this box where I couldn't explore outside of the bounds of my monogamous relationship. I could never watch porn again. And that was helpful at the beginning because it... Um, allowed me to not turn to sex as an escape method. But after a while, that started to feel inauthentic to me. I still wanted to be an open-minded, experimental, sexual person, but I didn't want to lie to the person that I loved. I didn't want to hurt myself or put myself in harmful situations and harm other people. And I think that's when the next phase of my recovery began, and it really shifted into something that felt more balanced to me. And so I think what that takes is a lot of self-awareness and checking in. So one of the tools that I do all the time is I just check in with myself and I check in with my partner. If we're going to do something different or new or, you know, which could include watching porn from time to time or having a threesome or, you know, recently I wrote about going to a swingers resort with my husband and all these things. I would have never thought I would do when I was in the early stages of my recovery. That would all seem so dangerous and scary. But I wanted to be at a place, and I do believe I'm in this place now, where I can do these things because I wanted to and not because I needed to. And that was a really huge distinction for me to make. And that would only take some awareness and, and practice, you know, of, Am I trying to escape something here? Is there a feeling I'm not trying to face? Is there a problem with my partner that I'm not trying to face? Or is this just based on healthy desire? And knowing that difference, I think, is what defines this next stage of of my recovery. And I wouldn't, you know, suggest for a person newly in recovery, like, just go for it, do whatever you want, because of course they need to understand, you know, their patterns, what step, what those patterns stem from and what they were trying to run from or not face. And if they're able to face those things in a healthy way, then why not define what recovery means to them? And I think everybody can do that in their own way. Mm, 
Yeah, that's really powerful. And in terms of uh, like continuing to go to meetings, is it really similar in terms of like what folks do for like narcotics anonymous meetings, alcoholics anonymous meetings, where it feels necessary for you personally to kind of continually go to those meetings or how? No, not for you. So I don't go to meetings anymore. And okay. actually the program was something that I did in the very beginning of my recovery, but it's not something I stuck with. And okay. I, I want to make it clear that those meetings can, you know, they save lives and they are so helpful for people who feel really alone and isolated and, um, and just need a community of, of peers to listen to them and, and witness them and their vulnerability. I think that it's a great space for that. Um, so I always suggest when somebody asks me what they should do as the very first thing is go to a meeting, you know, yeah. find somebody who you can talk to face to face about this, or I don't know, in the time of COVID, maybe, maybe <laughs> online, maybe <meetings>. online. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I have some issues with, with the program for me. I didn't like at the beginning, at the beginning of every meeting to say that I was powerless, especially later on when I, when I wanted to believe that I was empowered and that I, I did have control of this thing, I didn't think it was helpful for me to have to say that every time or believe that. Um, and I also felt like a lot of people did want to stay within that box. Um, and I think, you know, it could have just been the wrong meeting or whatever. You know, I, I'm sure I would have met those people eventually who wanted to explore as I had. But um, I did feel like it was a bit restrained for me. So I tried a lot of different things. I think meetings are one way, you know, you can find help, but also talk therapy and group therapy. I did something called the Hoffman process, which is the seven day retreat up in um, White Sulphur Springs in Napa. I think there's one on the East Coast as well, where you just work on identifying your patterns, negative patterns, where you learn them from your caregivers and then replacing them with healthier patterns. And it's the seven day, very intense retreat, a lot of physical work and writing and um, I found that really helpful. I mean, I tried kickboxing and, and writing, and there are a lot of different things I tried. And my point is that there's not one way out. And I think I was always looking for the one solution. And in the end, it was the combination of those efforts that helped the most in the end. Totally. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of that I feel like is just trial and error, just like there are mm -hmm. any other kinds of habits or things that you're trying to change. It's like, you know, a lot of different things. And I know for me personally, like whenever I have felt like really stuck in like thought patterns, like talk therapy has been super helpful for me just to have a professional be able to kind of share like what is going on and where those things are coming from. I think that, um, was really great for me and is really great for a lot of people. Absolutely. Yeah, I would agree. Just being able to be real and have somebody witness you like that, I, I think could be so helpful because we so often get stuck in our heads, right? And run around in circles, being able to put it outside of us um, is very helpful. Yes. Um, we come to our last question of the interview. This has been really, really amazing um, and super insightful. So thank you again for coming on. Um, oh, but I would, you. I would love to know what is something that you want everyone listening to know about sex and porn addiction? If there's kind of like one thing that you want to make sure people listening really get from, from your story and from this episode, what would that be? Hmm. I would want people to know that sex addiction doesn't have to be a result of sexual abuse or trauma or some sort of, um, sexual events that happened in childhood. Um, I, I think that that's often the narrative, especially for women was, oh, something 
must have happened in their childhood, um, usually sexually abused. And we often hear those stories, and that's absolutely true. That can happen, but it's not always the case. And I think that by continuing the same narrative over and over, um, we don't leave room for people whose stories are different than that. And then if we don't leave room for those kind of stories, then people won't seek help because then they'll just feel, well, then something must be wrong with me. If nobody else is talking about an experience that I've had, then, um, you know, it must not be happening. It must not be true. And, you know, so then they resist seeking help. So I often call my trauma, you know, uh, ordinary trauma. And I think that if you feel like other people have bigger problems to the point where you don't want to speak about them or you don't feel like your problems are valid, then to just please seek the help that you need and to know that you're not alone and to know that your pain is, is valid and, um, you're, yeah, you're not alone. And hopefully I, you know, I can be a voice for people who have felt like, yeah, that there was nobody else like them. And, um, I don't know if that was eloquent at all. That was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so, so much for um, for being on. And this was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Danielle. Ever look at your penis or vulva in the mirror and be like, damn, my part is art. Clona Willie definitely agrees. The original penis casting kit, Clona Willie and the classy counterpart, Clona Pussy, are easy to make, sex positive, and body safe. While Clona Willie makes for the most personalized sex toy on the planet, Clona Pussy makes for the most unique memento. All materials are 100% body safe, extremely high quality, and easy to use and clean. Check them out at www.clonawilly.com and use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase. Follow them on Instagram at clonawillykit. Our creator, co-producer, sound engineer, and host is me, Danielle Bezalow, a.k.a. DB. Our co-producer and communications lead is Catherine Cohen. Our main logo and banner graphic were created by Andrea Forgotch. Our social media intern is Leslie Lopez. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Our ad music is by my stepdad, Bill Gant. Thank you so much to our featured guests, partners, and our listeners. If you're interested in advertising with us, email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on Insta at sexedwithdbpodcast. Tune in next time. <laughs>